AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years, and not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, dance with me across the sea. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkbaum. And I'm Jim McCormick. What is the connection there? Doctor, doctor. You don't know the Thompson twins? No. Uh, Thompson, what? Oh my God. Oh my God. (laughs) I was joking in our last episode that I'm too old and now I really am too old. Thompson twins, 1980s, Doctor, Doctor. It's a great song and it has to do with a doctor, so medicine. And then we're talking about diabetes again in this episode and that's why. So, guys, this is part two of our our series about the future of diabetes. In our first episode, we talked about what the disease is and its history. It's Uh, long, long, long history. The history that dates back more than 
like more 3, than three thousand years. years. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. So yeah. we're, we talked all about that in the last and, episode, and includes drinking pee. We should. Yes, <laughs> yes. So if you if you missed that episode, you clearly want to check it out. You need Actually, to go back and let, listen. To let it. me revise. Drinking is probably not fair. Tasting, yes, like a wine tasting, right. where you're not supposed to swallow it. Sipping, probably sipping the urine. Yes, uh, absolutely true. Because diabetes uh, is all about. Uh, glucose level management in the blood, but it also comes through in the urine. And uh, water tasters would be able to detect the presence of sugar in patients' urine and thus diagnose them with diabetes. Now, of course, our diagnostic and research methods have improved significantly since the Dark Ages with yes. sipping urine. Yes. Uh, and in <laughs> fact, we're learning a lot about diabetes just in recent years that really could lead to significant changes in understanding what the disease is at its core and how to treat it. Now, one thing we should say before we even go any further is that uh, the, there are two major types of diabetes. There's type 1 and type 2. Right. And as Lauren pointed out in our last episode, type 1 is a type of autoimmune disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, type 2 is is different. Um, it is uh, uh, developed in a different way. And so some of the stuff we're going to talk about is largely focused on on type 2. I mean, the treatment levels can be for both. Uh-huh. Uh, but there, there will be some stuff on type 1 as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, but but just keep that in mind that when we talk about diabetes, it's not uh, always universal across both types. Okay, well, I thought we we should look at some studies that have come out mostly this year here Mm -hmm. in 2016 uh, that have detailed interesting developments in diabetes research, a lot of which you might not have predicted if you just went a few years back. And here's a really interesting one to start with. Now, I would not have expected that you would ever discover any link between a metabolic, metabolic disorder like diabetes and air pollution. Yeah, that, this is a very strange correlation that has been found. That that is odd. Like you, you know, air pollution is one of those things where certain conditions you could easily imagine, like asthma, other mm-hmm. you know respiratory illnesses, um, complications of things like bronchitis or possibly pneumonia. All of that I could easily, even heart disease, I could uh-huh. think of. But when you, if you had told me a couple of years ago that there was a link between air pollution and diabetes, I well, I mean, I'm I, You're like, well, smog gets into your pancreas and then what? <laughs> yeah, I'm still confused. Uh, specifically, what we're looking at here is uh, not not fully diabetes, but insulin resistance. Mm. Oh, okay. So it's a, a you know, a pre- precursor related uh, issue here. So uh, to uh, diabetes type two. Yes. Yes. So in August 2016, there was a study published in the journal Diabetes that looked at the link between long term exposure to air pollution and signs of insulin resistance. And insulin resistance, of course, is a, it's a condition that often precedes type 2 diabetes. It's influenced by inherited and lifestyle factors as well as environmental factors, as we're about to see. So the study had a sample size of 2,944 people in southern Germany between 2006 and 2008. And these people had previously, they'd been participants of a project known as the Cooperative Health Research in the Region Augsburg and they uh so the researchers looked for links in the data on these people between exposure to air pollution at their place of re- residence and the presence of biomarkers that give you a sign that the person is probably experiencing insulin resistance mm. and they found a correlation so uh, they found a correlation between the level of airborne pollutant concentrations at residence sites and some biomarkers, particularly those associated with pre-diabetes, 
more so than than full diabetes. Sure. And so from the press release, uh, the lead author, Dr. Catherine Wolf, said, quote, the results revealed that people who already have an impaired glucose metabolism, so-called pre-diabetic individuals, are particularly vulnerable to the effects of air pollution. In these individuals, the association between increases in their blood marker levels and the increases in air pollutant concentrations is particularly significant. Thus, over the long term, especially for people with impaired glucose metabolism, air pollution is a risk factor for type 2 diabetes. Wow. And that's interesting. I I mean, I, I didn't come across any information about what the What the link is here, yeah. Well, it may – I mean there are times where, one, we don't fully understand the mechanism and sometimes it ends up just being that they are uh, correlated but there's not necessarily a causal relationship, right? right? It may be that – There may be some underlying link that that connects the two. Exactly, right. There might be – you go further back and you realize, oh, well, this one thing is is affecting both branches. The branches themselves are independent and Mm -hmm. are not necessarily affecting one another but are both a result of this prime source. We don't know, uh, at least not based upon the research that we came across for this podcast. But it is – an interesting thing to look at and obviously would be something that if, if in fact there is causation there mm-hmm. would guide us to know about or, or to, to look into the possibility of increased rates of diabetes in parts of the world where th- this type of air pollution is particularly prevalent. Mm-hmm. Or it could also lead to, uh, to you know, prevention measures. Sure. Right? Even if you recognize this, even without necessarily understanding what the cause is yet – uh, let's say you develop prediabetes, you know, a doctor who if this research is validated, if it's replicated and shown multiple times, the doctor might want to say uh, if you want to avoid progression into full type 2 diabetes, you, you know, depending on where you live, you might want to move. Right. And for some people, that might be a possibility. Some people, of course, that may not be an option. Right. Um, you could also argue that this is one more reason out of the thousands that we have often listed on this show uh, to clean that stuff up, man. Yeah, start, <laughs> Find start ways reducing to... some of our carbon emissions, yeah. stuff like that. Oh, yeah. We've got plenty of reasons for that already, right, as but, you say. Yeah. But adding another one is yet another argument to say, look, look, like if you add up all the – even from an economic standpoint, mm-hmm. if you just add up all the negative impact from uh, pollution and you assign it a dollar amount, it makes financial sense yeah, yeah. to get to to make a transition. Not just you know, yeah, it's going to be hard. It's not it's not an easy thing. It's not a convenient thing, but it it ultimately is the best thing. Not just for people's health yeah. or the environment, but for the wallet. And in, and thus we can excuse uh, Fern Gully too, capitalism, and and it will be a terrific movie that is beloved by future generations of children. Um, there was a Fern Gully too, wasn't there? Oh, I'm pretty sure there was. Was there? I, really? I think there was, and I I didn't. Is there a rapping bat in it? I don't know that there's a rapping. Probably bat, not. But... Uh, I was about to say Bruce Willis. Where did that come from? Robin, Robin Williams. Williams. Yeah, I, you're uh, turning into me, Lauren. Where I just will take names, and then if there's a name that is even remotely similar, I'm like, nope, that's the name I wanted. <laughs> you know what? There was a lot of in Fern Gully, Flora. There was. Oh, and that's a great transition to our (laughs) next one. This is actually my favorite one because gut flora is my new favorite topic. 
Uh-huh. I, I love I love how much the bacteria that overpopulate um, or don't, don't overpopulate, but uh, but but massively overwhelm the amount of cells of you that there are in your body have so much to do also, with all of your health. Gut flora is also a great name for a future Bruce Willis movie. I'm just going to throw that out there before we get too far away from Bruce Willis. We're never too far away from Bruce Willis. He's I always sure in our hope hearts. not. <laughs> but do continue. So, so let's talk about this. So, what is the influence of gut flora on diabetes? Well, this one is perhaps a little more intuitive than than a possible correlation between air pollution and, and diabetes. So, this was based on a 2016 study in the American Journal of Pathology that reported on effects of a type of gastric bypass surgery mm. on mice with a with a model condition designed to sort of replicate the the effects of type 2 diabetes. And it has been observed that gastric bypass surgery, so a surgery that that, uh, sort of reroutes part of the digestive process, Mm -hmm. can cause remission of type 2 diabetes in humans and in mice. So you'd think that this might be because gastric bypass leads to weight loss, right? That's Mm -hmm. probably the... And weight gain is is one of the uh, comorbidities, one of yeah. the cosines of um, of diabetes. Sure. Right, but uh, medical, diabetes type two. Right, but medical researchers conclude that the remission can't be explained by weight loss alone. There's something else going on here. And so uh, after the surgery, subjects show improvements in both insulin sensitivity and glucose tolerance. So uh, what's going on here? And what they found in this study was there was an examination of gut microorganisms before and after the bypass surgery that showed a decrease in pathogenic bacteria and an increase in other uh, microorganisms in the gut that are considered beneficial for gut health. And these changes seem to coincide with improvements in metabolic and glycemic regulation. So the researchers, again, this is one of these things where they've just found an early interesting result and they're recommending more direct research into the subject. But essentially what we need to figure out is how changes in gut microbiota influence diabetes and metabolism in general. Hmm. That is really, I mean, the more I learn about gut flora, the more I am pretty convinced that I'm not in charge of myself. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're a a hybrid organism. Yeah. Uh Well, you know, I I like to think of myself as an evolved being. There's a book out about that that I've actually been meaning to read. I haven't read it yet, but it's by the the science writer Ed Yong, who I like, and the book is called I Contain Multitudes, and it's about... That's uh, a great title. uh Mm. It's about microbiota. It came out either this year or the year before, and uh, I keep meaning to read it. it. I've heard it's very good. Wow. Cool. All right. So, uh, again, more understanding of that could lead to a greater understanding of how to to uh, manage diabetes. So. Uh, but the picture is about to get even more complicated. So what? So yet another study came out this year in 2016 in Diabetologica, Diabetologica, however you pronounce that. Huh. Uh, 2016 study found that people who have an abundance of healthy fat stem cells in their body were more resistant to developing diabetes, even in equally obese patients. Um, so people with obesity that have the presence of the, the certain adipose cells, uh, mm-hmm. fat stem cells, uh, makes their organs more uh, more better, more uh, <laughs> yeah. efficient 
at storing fat in a way that is not ultimately detrimental to the body and leading to conditions that are associated with obesity like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And so they, the researchers concluded that uh, understanding the molecular mechanisms that underlie this difference between uh, obese patients with healthy fat stem cells and obese patients without them could help us develop new therapies to prevent insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes. Uh, but, man, we're starting to get a really complicated picture of all the different influences yeah. that, that might work themselves out in the body. To me, this is a continuation of that story that we explored in the first episode about the history of our understanding of diabetes, which not a big surprise, but over time becomes more complex and involved. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, obviously, anytime you're looking at a really complicated subject, that progression is going to go in that direction, right? We're not going to suddenly have a huge understanding and then go backward unless we have another dark ages. But I'm um, just sure. But yeah, no, it's just interesting to think that like the same way that people in the 1920s uh, might have been looking back at, at previous centuries and, and millennia of researchers going like, you thought it had to do with the kidneys, you yeah. idiots. Yeah. Uh, and now we're like, that now we're like, oh, huh. oh, it has to do with the with fat cells gut bacteria as well. and stem cells. And yeah, one really more brief note to complicate it even more. More. There was oh, also perfect. there was also a study this year in the journal uh, Psychoneuroendocrinology that essentially identified a pathway from psychological state to diabetes, and the pathway was from a type of executive function uh, known as low inhibition, essentially. Okay, that is correlated with the the state that's known as anxious arousal, you know, emotional anxiety, mm. and then correlated to inflammation, which is then correlated to diabetes. Which is actually also correlated to gut bacteria. Yes. uh, So so all of these things, huh. So so anyway. But this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because knowing this is making me anxious, which is therefore. (laughs) Eat a yogurt. You'll be fine. Okay. Uh, so yeah, this is even can, possible. I mean, th- this is one of these things that's making me think there have got to be a lot of false trails here. Sure. I mean, I'm sure all, all these different uh, areas of research are turning up some things that are going to turn out to not really be primary causes. Right. They may be may be a factor that influences, uh-huh. but perhaps not is uh, is you know, definitive in causing. Or or it could be an indicator that this other thing is happening and, and not uh not a cause of the oh, thing. Oh right, happening. right. Right. But anyway, I mean I feel like nevertheless our picture of the cause and effect relationship with whole body state versus metabolic regulation is is getting very complicated. It, yeah. Seems that way, based upon the <laughs> last few stories you've shared with us, Joe. <laughs> Uh, but then, of course, there is another one. This one has more to do with type 1 diabetes. Oh, and okay. this is uh, – there was a study that came out in 2016 called Hotspot Autoimmune T-Cell Receptor Binding Underlies Pathogen and Insulin Peptide Cross-Reactivity. Well, that seems self-explanatory. Let's, uh, the... let's, let, let's break that one down okay. just a little bit. Uh, this was in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. All these have been 2016 studies. This one is um, – uh, it, it found something pretty interesting. The presence of pathogens, germs, may be the cause or a cause of type 1 diabetes. Huh. 
So how how would you figure that? Well, here's how it goes. There are these insulin-producing cells that we talked about in the previous episode known as pancreatic beta cells. And in type 1 diabetes, uh, immune system cells known as T cells, white blood cells, attack these beta cells and destroy the body's ability to produce insulin. But what causes the autoimmune response? Like, why do the T cells attack the beta cells? They didn't like the cut of their jib. Because they're dumb as a bag of hammers. <laughs> they are pretty dumb. They don't even have <laughs> brains. You yeah, wouldn't believe it. I, well, as someone who suffers massive aller- allergic reactions, I am not a big fan of the way my, my body's immune system will misidentify certain allergens and then go into well, overdrive. Yeah, you know exactly then, Jonathan, yeah. how, how, stra- how uh, poorly understood states within the body at the cell level of cell function um, can cause complex systemic reactions that are not necessarily what your body intended, intended in quotes. You mm-hmm. know, as we said, the cells don't have brains, but they do have a, a sort of programmatic function. Yes. They're supposed to be attacking pathogens right. uh, to keep them out. But the the study here found that these T cells were cross-reactive in a particular way. And that means they, they react to a complex set of conditions that determine their behavior. And these conditions, the study found, could be brought on by the presence of particular pathogens. Uh, a quote from the study abstract is, T cell cross-reactivity with pathogen-derived antigens might break self-tolerance, which that, that's a great term, self-tolerance. Yeah, I assume I that means the immune system not attacking your body. I was uh-huh. say, I've got very low self-tolerance, but that's uh, something else. To, it's to, on, a, on a meta level. Yeah, a, yeah. yeah macro. To, in the end, to induce autoimmune disease. So it demonstrates the value in looking at the various ways external influences, such as germs and other pressures, might alter T-cell function to cause autoimmunity, autoimmunity mm. being not a good thing when right. the immune system attacks you, and that would include type 1 diabetes. So there can be cer- uh, there can probably be certain germs present in your body in certain ways that can trigger this chain reaction of autoimmune response against your beta cells. Huh. Now, huh. So that's heavy stuff you've laid down on us, Joe. Uh, it's really fascinating learning more about this disease that uh, we keep thinking we've got, like, or at least the indication I always felt was that we had a pretty good handle on it. But it turns out that it's far more complicated than I had anticipated. Well, I think we do understand a lot of the basics sure, pretty well. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's just that our picture is becoming, you know, the broader picture is becoming more and more complicated. Right, right. Uh, but we also have a lot of research into the practical means of how we could uh, improve the treatment for diabetes. Oh, and I've, I've got one more little bit of, of research that I found that, uh, that, that could potentially help lead to better understanding and, and better uh, therapies in the future. Um, there was a recent study that was published in the Journal of Clinical Investigation that looked into those early stages of type 2 diabetes that you were talking about a minute ago, um, that, that, that insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, the authors of this study were investigating whether there's a link between the processes processes that lead to accumulated fat in muscle tissue, which again, uh, obesity being a common uh, alongside to insulin resistance. Um, The others of of this one were looking specifically at um, whether there's a link between accumulated accumulated fat in muscle tissue, that, mm-hmm. that, that obesity kind of issue that we were talking about earlier, and the, the decreased glucose uptake 
that is one of those early indicators of insulin resistance and therefore of type 2 diabetes. And there is. Um, there's this protein that's called Mondo A that is a link between accumulated fat and muscle tissue and uh, decreased glucose uptake. Huh. Um, and this protein, the single protein, appears to regulate genes that control both fat synthesis and insulin signals. They they think that this protein might be what's telling your cells to stop taking in glucose and instead convert it into fat. Um, but they think that when the protein is activated too often, when there's just so much glucose in your blood that uh, that, that this protein is being triggered constantly, it could make your cells permanently resistant to insulin instead of just temporarily resistant to glucose. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, p- potentially in the future, this this could lead to treatments that could target and inhibit Mondo A, maybe, hopefully. Um, I mean, the, the researchers think that it could even help people manage their overall metabolism and body weight by managing the function of the single protein. That's cool. And so it's important to also uh, reiterate that a lot of these areas of research may ultimately not uh, not result in any useful treatment, but there's a lot of potential out there and there's so many different avenues of exploration that there's a lot of hope that we can find uh, much more effective ways of either preventing type 2 diabetes from uh, forming or even type 1 in the case of the the possibility that germs play an important role in the development of that type of diabetes or the management, making management uh, more like less of a pain, both literally and figuratively. Uh, and to that end, there are a lot of different uh, approaches that people have been looking into on one aspect of diabetes management, and that is monitoring your glucose levels in the first place. Because we mentioned like the original tests were all about testing the sugar levels in urine, which are not necessarily as uh, precise as you would want as a reading of your blood glucose levels. That's more of a relevant measurement. But blood glucose, the way you measure that typically is that you have to prick a finger or some other part of your body and uh, get a, a blood sample and then use a device to analyze it. So it's invasive. By definition, right? You have to get at the blood. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of look into the possibility of developing non-invasive means of measuring blood glucose levels, which would remove at least one of those barriers and one of those frustrations uh, that people um, encounter when it comes to diabetes. Could you do a breathalyzer? One would hope, but that was not one of the ones that I I read (laughs) about. Uh, There was a paper published in the National Institutes of Health back in 2012 that was sort of a a review of various processes that had been um, experimented with. In some cases, even products were brought to market, but ultimately, uh, spoiler alert, did not perform very well. And uh, they wanted to – it was specifically looking at these non-invasive approaches. Like are there any that are on a level that is promising if not as good as uh, monitoring glucose levels through actually analyzing blood directly? So here are some of the ones that they looked at. They looked at uh, uh, bioimpedance spectroscopy. Whoa. So this is uh, measuring the resistance to electric current flowing through tissue. Impedance. Huh. Uh-huh. Um, so this is not that different from uh, things that use like capacitance, touchscreens, that kind of stuff. I mean, our bodies, we've talked about it many times, 
we conduct electricity. We also have stuff in us that impedes the conductance of electricity. And that changes depending on our body chemistry. So the key here is that there are variations in glucose concentrations that change the number of sodium ions and potassium ion concentrations in our blood. So typically sodium ion concentration goes down, potassium ion concentration goes up. This changes our resistance to electricity. Um, so if you were able to measure that in a meaningful way, you would be able to make some, uh, uh, you would be able to, to figure out what the glucose levels of blood were. However, uh, all of these different approaches I'm going to talk about have different drawbacks. The one for this one is that it's not as reliable as other methods of checking blood glucose levels. And at the time the paper was written in 2012, it also required the diabetic person to rest for 60 minutes before taking any measurements. Oh. So yeah, you'd have to be at rest for an hour before you could take a measurement. Obviously, that's not practical for a lot of people, uh, particularly people who are suffering type 2 diabetes. And it, maybe it's not a very severe case, but it's enough for them to have to monitor their glucose levels. Uh, they might have a fairly active lifestyle, which is part of the way to help treat right. or manage diabetes. Uh, so, yeah, that is a little bit – That's it's not ideal, right? So there are other ones too. Electromagnetic sensing, similar. Uh, it's also reliant upon the dielectric properties of tissue. Uh, but in this case, you're talking about electromagnetic frequencies not uh, passing an electric current through tissue. Uh, they use two different inductors to sense any variation of dielectric parameters of the body, and glucose levels would affect those parameters. Also, this approach has drawbacks. Uh, it's very sensitive to temperature, for one thing. Uh, so there are optimal frequencies you would want to use based upon the temperature. And that means okay. that if you haven't set your inductors properly, mm -hmm. then you're going to get erroneous readings. And since those depend upon temperature and it's very sensitive, that is a level of ambiguity that is problematic when it comes, especially when it comes to something that you would want in a home uh, um, kit, right? Something that a diabetic person could use on their own without having to go to a professional to have this. I mean, if, you, if you're going to have to go to a professional, I think most people would just say like, I hate having to prick my finger, but it's better than having to go multiple times a day to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, then you have reverse iontophoresis. <laughs> I was about to say, do, do you have anything in the in the uh, electrical end that's more difficult to pronounce? Iontophoresis is probably up there, and I, I'm certain I am mispronouncing it. Uh, it yeah, that's a fancy way of saying you measure the flow of low electrical current between an anode and a cathode that would both be placed on a, on the skin's surface. Now, this one, I'm going to be straight up with you guys. I do not fully understand the mechanism here because I read the I read the whole paper and I read this section. And even after I read it three times, I was like, I'm still not sure what's going on here. But the way they described it was that you would put the electrodes on the skin and it would rely on, quote, a physiologically relevant fluid sample, end quote. Don't know what that means. Uh, physiologically relevant would obviously mean something that would also have glucose in it and would be relevant to the blood glucose levels. But since it's non-invasive, it's not the blood itself because you're not putting the electrodes in you. You're just putting them on the skin surface. Do you have to cry to use this device? <laughs> you do for another one. Oh, no. You do for another one. You're getting what? ahead of me because oh, that's goodness. next. Um, okay. But uh, the product uh, – 
there was a product that was actually brought to market using uh, this particular approach, but uh, it was discontinued after numerous issues became apparent. Largely that – well, one thing, the electrodes would tend to irritate the skin. And also you had to have them in place for an hour before you could take a reading, similar to the previous one I talked about. Uh, so not only do they irritate the skin, you had to wear them for a long time before you could even get your blood glucose level uh, reading. Also, sweating would throw off the accuracy of the measurements. So uh, if you started sweating during that hour while you're waiting to get your blood glucose level measurement, uh, you would throw things off. So not ideal. But now we're getting into the tears and crying yeah, fluorescence technology. Fluorescence is exactly what you think it is. It's using an enzyme of some sort that would cause, uh, in this case, your tears to fluoresce when exposed to a particular type of light. And you measure that fluorescence and uh, it uh, the level of fluorescence and the type of fluorescence would depend upon the levels of glucose found in your tears, which according to a study uh, that this particular paper cited, I'm sorry, I didn't write down the name of the other paper, but they cited a study that suggested that glucose levels in the tears correlate with glucose levels in the blood. Mm-hmm. Um, not exactly like on a, uh, you know, it's not saying that the level that you find in your tears is the same as in your blood, but, but they it's correlate. related. Yes. Yeah. And that if you know one, you can, you can, uh, extrapolate. Exactly. Yeah. Thank so you. How many times a day do you have to watch the end of Homeward Bound? Uh, well, it depends. You can, you can change it up, right? Like you can watch Brian's game or you or can Moulin uh, Rouge. You can watch, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I cry whenever anyone suggests turning on Moulin Rouge. Um, <laughs> oh snap. Not, not the actual movie, just the thought of having to watch it again. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Look, I'm not saying it, it, it is no Fern Gully 2, the magical rescue. Is that the actual <laughs> name of Fern Gully 2? It is. I looked it up while you guys were talking. Um, so, <laughs> so this this method would involve using this enzyme in your tears and then uh, analyzing the tears to find the blood glucose level. So it's non-invasive. However, uh, the enzymes have a short lifespan, and there's some questions about biocompatibility, which is obviously something you want in any kind of medical process. You don't want to find out it's non-compatible with your biology. Yeah, that's what we call bad. Yeah, toxic is probably one of those things you want to stay far away from, mm-hmm. right? So uh, then you had uh, infrared spectroscopy, uh, both mid-infrared and near-infrared uses of this technology. Uh, they, obviously, they're using different frequencies on the infrared spectrum. Uh, this would involve measuring absorption rates, really the reflective rates, uh, the the amount of light that comes back after you would uh, expose an area where your you know tissue area to get an idea of blood glucose levels. Uh, right, and this this is a method that they're using to to certainly take pulses non-invasively, yeah, yeah. With, and mechanically. Right, and and so or electronically rather, you're looking at reflection because uh, infrared does not penetrate very far into tissue. Uh, so you're not going to like shine an infrared light through. It's not like an X-ray. It's not going through your body. So you're looking at the reflected uh, reflection of those um, those infrared rays, those that infrared light, and then you're being able to to extrapolate from that what the glucose levels in the blood are. Uh, but they, these also have issues. Um, for one thing, there are other elements that can affect the absorption of the infrared uh, rays, like water content in your blood. So you might get a false reading because of the water content, not the glucose levels in your bloodstream. Obviously, if you're looking at medicating, that is a problem if you're going on a false reading. 
Uh, also, uh, with near-infrared spectroscopy, you have to exert a great deal of scanning pressure. In other words, you have to really – Dig it on in there? Yeah. You can't mm-hmm. just you can't just lay the device against your skin in that case. Uh, there's other methods, uh, ultrasonic approaches. Uh, in the report that I was reading, the researcher actually noted that very little research had gone into using ultrasound itself. But a variation on ultrasound called photoacoustic spectroscopy had been experimented with. And it's kind of a funky approach. So here's here's how it works. And when I read this, I was like, wow, now we're getting into some pr- – who thought of this? At what point did someone say, hey, I got an idea, guys? <laughs> so you use a laser to excite fluid within tissue. So you're using the laser to essentially heat stuff up essentially. And then you listen to that tissue. You, you actually you listen to the excitement of the tissue? Yeah. You, uh, you put a microphone up to that tissue and you're like, go crazy, guys. And then you analyze the sound – that comes from the tissue from thermal expansion and you measure, you analyze it, measuring it peak to peak. And this will give you enough information to figure out the blood glucose levels in I that th- tissue. I think they were watching the scene in Ghostbusters 2 with the pink goo where they play the music for it and right. it starts dancing. Yeah, when you play uh, Your Love is uh, yeah. it's uh, lifting take, me higher. Take me higher, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, it's um, maybe... Uh, but apparently they can analyze the peak-to-peak value of the acoustic signal and, and determine the glucose levels from that. But like the other methods I've mentioned, this one also has limitations. Uh, changes in temperature and pressure in particular cause problems with precision and accuracy using this methodology. As well as proximity to Vigo the Carpathian. Yes, yeah, yeah <laughs> and those giant portraits. Uh, so they also looked at a lot of other different scanning technologies similar to some of the spectroscopy I had mentioned already. I didn't want to go into all of them, but they across the board, the conclusion was that the demand for non-invasive glucose monitoring is very high for multiple reasons, right? As a quality of life issue, as a means to to remove that barrier from people who are afraid of getting uh, diagnosed because they don't want to deal with that reality, mm-hmm. and and some people are very uh, do have phobias of, of of skin pricks and blood sure. and all that kind yeah. of thing. So absolutely, yeah. so being able to remove that, there's obviously a demand for it. However, uh, according to the research, there's we're just not there yet. None of these technologies had reached a level of maturity where it could be as dependable uh, as the the accepted methodology. So without that, it's you can't really recommend people switch over. Sure. Uh, speaking of technology that isn't quite there yet. Um, yeah, there's uh, one in development. Yeah, yeah. I found I found I found a, a food sensor. Yeah, I uh, looked into this. So you you found a company called Telspec, T E L L S P E C, and it's a sensor that you use to in, to find out what ingredients are in a food at a molecular level. Yeah, you like point it at a food and it tells you the entire nutritional content. I think we've actually talked about this device on the have podcast we? before. We may I have. I believe you. I think we have. It sounds really familiar. Well, and there are. I've are, forgotten way more than I've said. <laughs> there are some related uh, topics as well. Like there was a Kickstarter campaign for a uh, type of mug that was supposed to give you a readout of the specific stuff that was in the mug. Um, and then ultimately, I think what the Kickstarter <laughs> campaign delivered was just a mug. Like, it, like. Like it, they they downgraded their their promise from mm. this will tell you the ingredients of the stuff that's in in this to this will hold, hold liquid stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, a fluid will take the shape of the mug itself, just like any 
another container. Uh, but no, the the idea was. <laughs> I just thought of the a great idea. You could sell something that will uh, guarantee that whatever liquid you put in it has a ten percent increase in lead content. <laughs> Not, not, uh, not something I'm going to market anytime soon, Joe, but I appreciate your moxie. Uh, so, so Telspec is working on a product that, as far as I can tell, is not yet at, um, brought to market. It's still in the prototyping stage where uh, it will use near-infrared spectroscopy and bioinformatics to measure the ingredients of food on a molecular level. And uh, what you would do is you'd use this small device. It would pair with a smartphone. You scan the food you want to eat with the device. The device would send the data it collects up to the cloud for analysis. That analysis would then be beamed down to your smartphone in an easy-to-read format on an app, and then you would be able to see what 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 is made up of the food you're about to eat. And this could help diabetics plan out their insulin dosages, right? Like if they realize, oh, there are a lot of carbohydrates in this that I didn't anticipate when I ordered it. Uh, that would impact how they would uh, manage their insulin throughout the day. So it could allow people who have diabetes a better understanding of uh, what they are eating and thus uh, be able to manage their treatment on a more granular level. Yeah, and this this is a, a very common – I mean I'm, I'm sure that, that most human people at this point in, in – the universe have an experience of like looking at a food label, trying to decide whether the food that you're about to eat is terrible or okay. Yeah. And having no idea. Um, right. In some cases you're like, okay, I got it. If I'm going to eat a deep fried onion, that's bad news. That's obviously not the best. But there are but other how times. how not the best is it? Right, well, I think it's the most not the best, or at least a, a few years ago. I think it was something like. What if it's awesome? Uh, <laughs> well, it. So many jokes, but I'm going to avoid. I'll, let me just say that I think I read something where it was like the highest caloric intake of any regular menu item. Well, first of all, if you're eating an entire awesome blossom, I'm not sure. I'm not, but I will not eat sure an entire how. blooming onion. I will put that away. Well, they're okay. What's Do the not tell me they are the same thing. Oh. We will have words. Okay, I don't. I, I really don't know. It's what all in the breading? Oh, oh okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Also, the just the way they cut the onion is different. Oh, sure. Yeah. I didn't know you had a real opinion. I thought you were playing. I haven't had one in many, many years because I realized how bad they were for oh, good me. For you. But there yeah. are the craving is always there, like a vampire. <laughs> I always crave the blooming onion. Yeah. I I just live my life denying myself that. Yeah. Uh, but. But point point being, yes, uh, uh, nutrition is difficult, and making yes. anything that you can do to make this kind of thing easier for people right. is good news. Yeah, I I think if there really were a a device that gave you really solid, complex nutritional information with a sort of non invasive scan of your food, that mm. would be cool. I'm I don't know. I, I'm kind of skeptical of this device. Well, yeah. and, and we've seen we've seen. Um, the approach from the the provider side, like from the actual like the food vendor side, we've seen that change over time, right? More and more places require uh, uh, restaurants to include nutritional information about their menu items. It's not and has offered that. Yeah, yeah. I would love to see a, a broader adoption of that policy across 
all regions. It's not like it's everywhere, but you might notice that if you go to certain restaurants, like fast, even fast food restaurants, you can look up and get at least some basic idea of the nutritional value of food. And often it's not very, you know, it doesn't go very deep. But then if you go to a website, you might get more information. This gets a little more complicated when you're talking about like a mom and pop place, not, not a chain. You know, then you're like, well, this is, that's when a little handheld device would really come in handy because Chances are you don't have like a website that gives you deep nutritional information about all those different uh, dishes. Or make um, easy to use mass spectrometers available to everyone and as profitable as it is to mark up drugs in the market. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Well, let's talk about something else. A totally no different so, approach. So you have to atomize your food before you eat it. No, just, you know, the, the mom and pop shop, you know, gets gets their 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 kickback. <laughs> <laughs> I atomizes a, a plate of that and then, you know, can okay, pass yeah. the savings pass, on to you. Pass the nutritional data savings on to you. Yeah, definitely. Well, how about we switch gears for a second? <laughs> I want to talk about cell transplants. This was another, oh, yeah. another piece that was, uh, that we, we had in our notes and then I started researching it. It's, it's really fascinating. And there, there have been several cell transplant procedures and, uh, in different ways. And I'm going to go through some of them, but the one I really wanted to talk about, was one that happened uh, last year. Uh, the Di- Diabetes Research Institute at the University of Miami Health System developed a transplant procedure in which they took insulin-producing islet cells, or those beta cells, and they implanted them into a layer of fat in a recipient's abdomen, uh, and they cement them into place using a sticky gel-like substance mm. So they, that holds them so that they are uh, able to... Um, to to pr- to produce insulin and move it into the bloodstream where it's needed. I okay. think they actually did use GAC, wasn't it? GAC. <laughs> it was not. GAC. Oh, oh! I just GAC. remembered the smell of that stuff. You guys are. Oh. Are, you guys are killing me here with your young references. I know what GAC is, but that's after my time. Oh, uh, it smells like petroleum in my head now. <laughs> well, they 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 performed this procedure on a diabetic patient named Wendy Peacock who uh, said that within a month, actually the doctor said that within a month, uh, those cells were producing insulin the way a healthy pancreas would. Ooh, uh-huh. And they were responding to glucose levels naturally. They would produce more insulin if the glucose levels increased and produce less when they went down. Uh, she was still taking doses of insulin as a supplement in order, mm-hmm. really in order to not put too hard a strain on these cells immediately out of the gate, right? To have kind of an onboarding process where the cells could get up to speed uh, and it seemed to be working. Uh, there had been other cell transplant procedures before this. Most of them involved uh, transplanting islet cells onto the liver. Now, this works, but it also uh, was somewhat limited uh, and and slightly less successful than this other approach, which was less invasive as well. Uh, than the liver surgery. But the long-term effects are still being studied. So with the liver approach, typically you see a five-year lifespan for those cells. And then you would need another procedure after that. Uh, they tend to produce insulin properly for about five years before they die off. They don't know as much about the uh, experimental process where they, they did it in the layer of fat on the abdomen because it was only last year when the procedure was done. So we don't know if the cells will last longer or if they won't last as long. Uh, that remains to be seen. So that's, par- that's part of the ongoing study. Uh, but there is a ma- massive trade-off to the cell transplant approach. It's not something that is 
uh, automatically a cure that is going to make people feel better for the rest of their lives. Uh, that massive trade-off is that you have to take um, immune-suppressing medications for the rest of your life. Because, because you are taking some something else's cells into your body. Yeah, yeah, you've got a you've got essentially foreign cells, and if you want to make sure you're, that your body does not identify those cells as hostile, and thus go into attack mode, similar to what we talked about with the type one diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, you have to take immune suppressing medications, and that of course has its own. Uh, suite of, oh, of yeah. risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you have a higher risk of infection, particularly uh, the month or so after you've undergone a surgical procedure. Uh, for this reason, the procedures for cell transplants are typically reserved just for people with type 1 diabetes and, and those who have severe hypoglycemia, that low blood sugar. Uh, if they have episodes that are really severe and come with little to no warning, then they are candidates for this kind of cell transplant surgery uh, because the trade-off of having to go on immune-suppressing drugs for the rest of your life is still better than having to deal with type 1 diabetes where you're constantly having to to uh, administer insulin in some form. Either you're doing right. shots or you've yeah. got an insulin pump. or And that even on your very best days when you're keeping up with it, you still you still have a, a pretty high risk for, for um, going into seizure or even yeah. coma. Yeah, yeah that's, exactly. That's not, yeah. not the good times. No. Um, uh, but there's some research that I was looking into that might, um, might help mitigate this autoimmune response to transplanted cells. Oh, awesome. Um, because, like, like, kind of in this case, all you have to do is figure out a way to protect the cells. Oh, that's all you have to do. It's yeah. simple. Um, so enter some fun materials science. Um, th- there was a team headed up by researchers out of MIT and the Boston Children's Hospital, and they were working with materials that have been derived from brown algae. Oh, wow. Uh, these al- al- alginate, yes, alginate gels can um, encapsulate the, the beta cells and you know, protect them while still allowing materials, uh, some molecules like like sugar and proteins to to go in and out. So allowing the cells to remain living. If you encapsulate cells so that they're perfectly safe, but they all die, then you're not really doing much good. Um, So so when you implant cells that are encapsulated uh, with these alginate gels in primates and humans, they they tend to cause scar tissue to develop, however, which is bad news. You know, it, it indicates that another although slightly less troublesome, immune response is happening. So so they created like 800 chemical derivatives of these alginate gels. Wow. Um, each with like wee little molecular changes to see if they could get one of them to just slip under the immune system's radar. And uh, and they did. So far, it works in mice. Um, and their, uh, their next step is planning uh, non-human primate trials. So it's moving along. And, uh, you know... It might be it might be a while before they get it right, but it, it could give um, it could give this this transplant of cells concept uh, a new breath of life. Yeah, that'd be great to see uh, a reduction in that necessity, right? And also to because if that happens, if in fact you can reduce the risk of uh, essentially the body's rejection of those cells, you open up the potential of applying that strategy to a broader range of diabetic patients. Uh, first, you would uh, assume that you would uh, apply it to more type 1s, sure. but who have less or fewer uh, hypoglycemic episodes, or, or they tend to come with enough of a warning so that you can, you can preemptively avoid it. Uh, and then possibly, if it's an effective enough treatment, you could start 
discussing the idea of looking at type two. I think that would be far less likely. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to you'd have to figure out whether or not the um it you know what type of therapies are more effective for for type two diabetes and whether it really whether you could just start replacing those insulin creating cells in the pancreas or whether it would be more effective to to look at the sugar the the glucose reuptake right right uh, because remember with type two you are still producing insulin you're just not doing it necessarily as well and, right yeah so yeah. it's it's a different different beast than mm-hmm. type 1. So one other uh, interesting study that came out this year that I thought was worth looking at was about a new research approach for uh, understanding the function of beta cells, which could actually lead to the creation of regenerative medicine therapies for diabetes. Uh-huh. So, of course, regenerative medicine, what is that? that that's uh, dealing with uh, the cell level, being able to re-engineer, regrow, or replace cells that uh, that are having problems within the body. They're dysfunctional or they've been damaged or destroyed. And so what did this uh, 2016 study in Nature find? Well, they uh, identified a protein known as uh, FLTP or flat top. That's really what they called it, (laughs) flat top. And it's a marker that helps divide pancreatic beta cells into groups. So you've got these two different types of beta cells. One group does the work. They're the the workhorses of the beta cell brigade. They regulate glucose metabolism. And the other group is marked as immature cells that undergo accelerated cell division, meaning they multiply more frequently. And how can you tell the difference? Well, when the protein flat top is present, the cells assumed their mature cell function, meaning that that is the the mark of a mature beta cell that's doing the job Mm -hmm. that it's meant to do, regulating glucose in the surroundings and releasing insulin. But beta cells without flat top, they're the, the breeding cells, the rabbit cells, basically. They proliferated four times as much as cells without flat top. And uh, and the question, one of the questions the researchers were wondering about is, well, c- can we be sure that these rapidly proliferating cells in the pancreas or pancreatic cells eventually do turn into mature beta cells that are going to be doing the work that uh, that a diabetic would need done, you know, releasing or that anyone would need done, sure, especially that you have lost function of if you have diabetes. And the researchers found, yes, they used this technique that's known as lineage tracing. So they made all the cells go on to Ancestry.com. No, they used color-coded genes uh, that uh, these genes have different uh, color signals that activate when a gene is being expressed. Ah. And you can use that to sort of trace the life cycle of an individual cell. And all this means that hopefully uh, through research based on these new findings about the division of cells, uh, of pancreatic beta cells, we might be able to better understand how to regenerate beta cells to replace the ones that have been damaged or destroyed through diabetes now that we know this about these – about the relationship between these immature proliferating rabbit cells and the mature cells that do the work. Oh, that's fascinating. And then we have the concept of the artificial pancreas. There are three, essentially three main approaches to this, uh, one of which is actually called the artificial pancreas. So uh, in 2006, there was a project launch called artificial pancreas. This was essentially the technological approach to creating a device that uh, does a lot of the functions of the pancreas 
um, at least as far as monitoring and responding to glucose levels is concerned. It couldn't actually produce insulin. You would have to uh, feed it insulin, essentially. But what it boils down to is what I talked about in that last episode with the wireless insulin pumps. It's mm -hmm. a more sophisticated approach to that, where you have a glucose monitor that is connected to a uh, wireless pump that is automatically responding to changes in the blood glucose level as indicated by the monitor so that people can live, you know, relatively uh, unimpeded lives. They don't have to put thought into it. They don't have to actually uh, monitor the pump or make any uh, modifications to it. It all is taken care of and can uh, increase a person's quality of life dramatically as a result. Uh, so it's kind of a wireless pump on overdrive. At least that's the 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 goal. And it's a, a project that's still going on today. There are people who have had the the basic level of technology. Um, they've been part of pilot programs, and they, the reports I've seen have said that it is a very positive experience compared to what they were coming from. Uh, but ultimately, again, this is a technology that will really monitor and, uh, glucose levels and deliver insulin. It doesn't, it doesn't replace a pancreas. It's not like a, a robo pancreas that you have in your body that does the work of, uh, producing insulin and distributing it properly. That being said, there are other alternatives that also fall into the artificial pancreas uh, category one of which is the bioengineering approach. This is essentially that cell transplant uh, strategy I was talking about earlier, where you would create a bio-artificial pancreas using the cells that produce insulin. Uh, but as we mentioned in that previous section, uh, this can have pretty drastic consequences. It's not meant for every person who suffers uh, from diabetes, at least not in the implementation that we have right now. And then there's the gene therapy approach. There are some researchers who are looking into using gene therapy to transform cells within the digestive tract, essentially within the intestines themselves, into uh, insulin-producing cells so that you would uh, you know, repurpose some cells in the body to take on the job of producing an, uh, insulin and releasing it into the bloodstream in, in response to glucose levels in the blood. Uh, so these are all possibilities that we could see where – it's not so much – I don't know so, that it's so much a cure as it is an automated management system for diabetes. It's hard to mention it. Being, like it's not like you no longer have the disease but rather that you have systems within your body that can manage the disease so it is almost as if you do not have it. Um, it's a little you – know, it's not the same thing as saying, wow, I, I used to have diabetes but now I know I'm, I'm diabetes free. Oh, right, right. Well, and, and really – I mean, I, I, I love, I love doing these episodes where we look into something that I think that I know things about. And then by the end of it, I'm like, oh, not only do I have no idea how it works, but literally no one has any idea how it works. Like there's like, we, we know the basic mechanisms by which diabetes works. And, and we've been talking about a lot of the new research, uh, that's, that's gone into it. But, um, but, but really like, like on a intercellular molecular level, we're still not sure what's going on. And so it's, it's so great that all of this, all of this is being done and under, and, and within so many different avenues to, to look for potential, if not cures, at least um, uh, much more effective and less invasive treatment options. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the incentive to do so 
is is clear that w- we covered that in our first episode uh, really you extensively know, the millions of people that this would benefit not to mention the financial impact it would have uh, there there is every incentive to continue this kind of of line of of uh, of uh, research and experimentation and uh, uh, advances in various forms of management and treatment and diagnosis as well so I feel like I learned a ton. Um, like I didn't know about anything from 3000 years ago with relation to diabetes until we did this episode. And now I feel like pub trivia, I'm ready for it. So assuming that they have just an entire section on diabetes, who knows? <laughs> that is a very, very popular pub trivia night. Yeah. Nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing gets the party going, like talking about a terrible disease that millions of people have. Um, that being said, I know some pub trivia masters who probably would have done at least a question, if not a round, on the subject because of their their particular sensibilities. I'm not passing judgment. I'm merely making an observation. <laughs> uh, guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, maybe it's a, a big, broad topic that you want us to do a deep dive on. Or maybe it's just something you know that you're just curious about. Maybe there's a technology or, or scientific development that you've heard about and you want to you learn more about. Send it our way. We'll uh, take a look. You can do that by sending us an email. Our address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook. At Twitter, we're fwthinking. If you go onto Facebook and search for the term fwthinking, our profile will pop right up. You can leave us a message, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.